This is the IBJ Podcast for the week of September the 5th, 2022, brought to you by Taft. I'm your host, Mason King. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. You may have heard that the Indiana Fever, our resident WNBA team, went cold at the midpoint of the most recent season and never recovered. After starting off with a record of 5-13, and 13, the team hit an 18-game losing streak. On August 14th, it finished with a record of 5-31, and 31, its worst since joining the league in the year 2000. It wasn't necessarily a surprise that the team would struggle. It drafted seven rookies earlier in the year, and the roster carried seven rookies for most, if not all, of the season. Four of the Fever's draft picks were in the top ten, so there was some hope that the newbies would be able to turn things around more quickly. The Fever won the WNBA title ten years ago, but the team hasn't made the playoffs since 2016. In 2019, management installed former Fever superstar Tamika Catchings as vice president of basketball operations and general manager. Also that year, Allison Barber was named president and chief operating officer, bringing a high-powered resume with significant communications and community relations roles in the Red Cross, the White House, and the Pentagon. Prior to joining the Fever, she was chancellor of Western Governors University, Indiana. Since 2019, the team has gone 30 and 94 for a winning percentage of 24%. Catching stepped down in February before the beginning of this season. The Fever brought in as interim general manager Lynn Dunn, who coached Catchings and the Fever to their 2012 title, and she'll stay in that job for at least another year. Management made a coaching change early this season, naming former IUPUI star Carlos Knox as interim head coach. We learned Wednesday of last week that Knox will not be retained for next season. The Fever hadn't publicly announced Knox's fate when I spoke with Barber for the IBJ podcast a couple of days earlier. I was interested in getting her take on the 2022 season, her top priorities in the offseason, and the challenges of leading an organization mired in a rough transition. The team also hopes to see a major turnaround in attendance. Due to ongoing renovations at Gamebridge Fieldhouse, the team shuttled between three local arenas last season, and its average home crowd fell to about 1,800 fans. That's roughly a quarter of what they drew just five or six years ago. Here's our conversation. It's my pleasure to welcome to the podcast, Allison Barber, the president and chief operating officer of the Indiana Fever. Thank you for making time today. Thanks for having me, Mason. I don't think uh, there's too much reason to beat around the bush. The Fever had a had a difficult season this year, so let's talk about that first. The team's record over the last four years has been 30 wins and 94 losses. And when you were hired in, in 2019, you said at the time, the team is definitely in a rebuilding mode. Why is progress so hard to find on the court? Well, you know, we thought we were in a rebuild mode. And, you know, in business and sports, it takes three years typically to transform whatever you're working toward, you know, change a culture, change a team. But in sports, I think what the challenge is a little bit different is because we didn't have, we our focus was on rebuild. But if you don't have the right people on the team, the rebuild won't happen because the people drive the culture, which drives the, you know, what happens on the court. And so we're now 
in you know rebuild 2.0 and i'm confident now because we've we've really readjusted the people on the team both in the front office on the bench and on the and on the court our actual team so this past season we pretty much rebuilt the team with seven new rookies so you think the WNBA has 12 players we brought in seven rookies and that's and they showed some really great progress the wins we didn't get the wins that we thought we would get the progress was there. And, and I think that's, you know, I've, got, I've come from business and nonprofits. You think about when you hire people right out of college, you don't expect them to perform at the level you perform at because they're right out of college. And that's exactly what we did with the Fever. Seven, seven amazing elite athletes right out of college. So it'll take another, you know, probably take another year or maybe two to get them performing at the level of the WNBA. So, you know, I, I think when I started this job, we thought we had the right people in place and we just needed to change some of the strategy and, and maybe some of this focus. Uh, what we learned pretty quickly is that we didn't, didn't quite have the right people in place, all good people, just not the right mix of people. And so now we've made that change. I know you brought on Lynn Dunn, uh, at least as, as an interim, uh, and help me out with the title here. Is she the interim general manager? That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. I believe that would seem like it would be a pretty key hire in a pretty key spot. Uh, what has she brought to the team? Well, you you might remember that Lynn Dunn was the head coach of the Fever when they won the championship. When Lynn retired, she became a consultant, and her whole job has been coaching coaches. And, you know, she's been in the business for 50-some years, you know, of coaching and and she just had, you know, I, I tell you what, Mason, when you work with somebody who is an a expert at their subject matter, it's helpful because it takes all the guesswork out of it. And they're thinking, you see this in business too. If you've been doing something for years and years, you build these competencies. So you don't have to go back to the beginning and try to think about how something's going to happen. So let's just take the draft, for instance. Lynn has been so involved in basketball and the business of basketball you know, when it was time for the draft, a, a team or in free agency, a team wanted one of our players. And Lynn said, well, we'll give you that player, but you have to give us a first round pick in the draft. Well, that team didn't have a first round pick. And Lynn said, we'll go get one. <laughs> so and that team and that team did. If you're a rookie general manager, you're just looking at the facts on the paper and you're going to say they don't have a first round pick to give. If you're Lynn Dunn, who's been doing this her whole life, she knows how to tell the team to go get the first round pick. And they had to make trades with other teams and bring back a first pick to us. So that's, she's got these competencies that you only develop with experience and time, similar to all of us in our careers. You know, we do things today at our levels that, you know, 30 years ago, we'd have to think a lot about. And now it comes naturally because you have competencies and that's what Lynn brings to the table. She's got just the right level of optimism that's rooted in fact. She's got the experience and the competencies, and she has the respect of our players and coaches. And that goes, you know, that's really important in in sports. When you joined the Fever in 2019, I mean, you came from I mean, a, a background that did not have a lot of basketball in it. <laughs> you, no, the the most recently, my career was what happened in my driveway because I love the game. Right. Um, so you had been chancellor at. Uh, Help me out with that with the title. WGU, yeah, WGU Indiana Western Governors University. So I started that university in 2010. I started the state brand of the university. It's a national nonprofit online university. Mm-hmm. And the former governor Mitch Daniels wanted to bring it to Indiana, and he asked me to start it. So that was 
when I came back from DC after 20 years, I came to Indianapolis to start the WGU Indiana model. And you had a background in education. Mm-hmm. Yeah, taught school in Northwest Indiana, taught for six years. And then we, my husband joined the army and we moved and ended up in DC for 20 years where I was involved in government and the Pentagon and the White House and adjunct professor at Georgetown. So lots of, I'm in my eighth career. Uh, so this is my first time in sports. Yeah. So, yeah. So at WGU, you were able to come in and more or less, I guess, create a culture by scratch. Yes. Uh, and and you were in, in probably an area you're a little more comfortable with. Was there a pretty serious learning curve coming into an existing organization like the, the Fever? I think the, yes, there was a steep learning curve, which I'm, I'm energized by, which is probably why I'm always open-minded about changing careers. Cause I do like, it wouldn't be for everybody. You know, every time you start a new career, it's like being a freshman in high school. Nobody thinks about you. You got to figure out where the lunchroom is. It's, you know, it's challenging. I'm energized by that. But, you know, the learning curve for me was, I be, I do believe that people will support what they align with, what they believe in. And so when I came into sports, you know, people said, oh, well, you'll have more fans and more partners if you win more games. Yeah, because people like winners. And I just, you know, I chafed at that a little bit because I'm a Cubs fan and have it all my life. So I was a Cubs fan before they ever won anything. And so I just, I had a notion that if you could create a culture that excited people, current fans, potential fans, that it might not matter as much about if you could win or lose. It, but it, it would, if they believe in you and believe what you believe, you could build a pretty robust fan base and partnership. And so there was a little give and take when I came into this job of me bringing that mindset. And I don't disagree. I mean, people do love a winning team, of course, but you know, very few teams win constantly. And so you've got to really reach out and figure out what do your fans and partners really care about. So I think we've had some success and some learning along the way. I've I've learned a lot from the people I work with. They're so terrific and they're committed at Pacer Sports Entertainment. They've been doing it a long time. Uh, but, you know, we had to rebuild our franchise brand. Tamika Catchings, who was the, you know, the wonderful leader of the franchise as a player, when she retired, it just was time to reimagine the fever. So we're right in the middle of that right now. So it's, it's a le- learning curve for sure, uh, but it's exciting. Yeah, I would think, uh, as I was sort of, you know, considering, you know, what your role is, one of the difficult things about running a basketball franchise is that you ultimately are judged by the public or a win-loss record. But the scope of your job is much bigger than what happens on the court. I mean, what would you say are your, are your main responsibilities? What are you working on when uh, Lynn and, and the players are, uh, and then the coaches are, are working on what's happening on the court? You know, it comes back to the th- our three-pronged strategy of the Fever, commit, compete, and contribute. So all of our players are, you know, on board with this strategy. This is what drives me every day. Commit, how can I commit to be the best co-worker, worker, leader I can be through development, learning, growing personally, compete. So I spend a lot of time working on partners, trying to raise the visibility of the franchise throughout the state. You know, we're the Indiana fever, not the Indianapolis fever. So I do have a deep passion and about building connectivity to the fever throughout the entire state. So I travel the state in the off season to raise visibility so that I'm competing for fans you know, when we have games, I'm in the stands meet, meeting with our fans, thanking our fans, hosting our fans. You know, we're so fortunate at the Fever to have these amazing loyal fans who have been with us through thick and thin. And so that I'm competing to 
keep connected with our fans and then to grow the fans um, for sure. And, and the partners, I've spent a lot of time identifying, working with and connecting with partners to create a good partnership, you know, not just sponsorship, but partnership. How do we show up, you know, the national guard, we brought them on as a partner this year. How do we really show up and help them guard hit their recruiting numbers? Like that's important to me, not just because I'm, my husband was, you know, as a veteran, but for the safety of our country, that's important. So spending a lot of time in that space as well. Um, and then supporting our coaches and players and Lynn as well. And then contribute is our third C. How do we give back? And so we do, I do that personally, hosting groups, mentoring, working with young students, college age students. How are we contributing back? So this is a little bit how I film my day-to-day work in those three C's. But you're right. It's a leadership challenge. That's a new one for me because typically as a leader, you create a team and then you're constantly working with that team to set your strategy and achieve the metrics that you identified as succeed. Well, in this job, I have a team, but I'm not involved in their day-to-day success and X's and O's. You wouldn't want me to be for sure. Uh, So it's a little, it's a really different model that I've learned a lot to adapt to is what is the role of the leader of the fever when you're not also the GM or the coach. And you mentioned um, bringing on the National Guard. I guess you consider that a win for the team that, you know, people wouldn't necessarily know about. I mean, were there, have there been other like financial wins or for the financial structure or for sponsorship that the people just probably, if they haven't been at games, wouldn't really know about? Well, I tell you what's, yes, uh, for sure. What's really important and interesting to me is that we've created partnerships where the measurement of success is different than what you would typically think of in a sponsorship. So for instance, uh, the Red Cross is a partner, but they're not measuring how many times their logo shows up on the bill, billboard or, you know, they're measuring the actual community engagement. So just last Friday, the Red Cross had a blood drive and Queen Edbo, one of our rookie players, went to the blood drive to raise some visibility for it. So Freddie Fever, our mascot was there. Queen was there. We assumed she would show up. She would talk to blood donors. She would talk to staff and, you know, just contribute back into the community. I stopped by just to thank Queen for doing it. And I asked where Queen was and they said, oh, she's in the room getting ready to donate blood. So talk about above and beyond the, you know, request we made of Queen. There she is now becoming a blood donor and, you know, her donation will save three lives. You know, this is, these are the wins for us of showing up in the community. We've partnered with the Wheeler Mission for Women and Girls. So we're now the sponsor of their fitness center. Doesn't that just make great sense? The Fever Fitness Center for Women and Girls is, you know, we're a sponsor of that. But then my players engage and go and help run camps for the kids. So we show up in lots of ways. Our partnership with Anthem has really been, really been a new, it's new for us. And it's significant for this reason, Mason, with Anthem, we are creating an Anthem Assist program. So imagine this, that at Fever Games, we highlight the work of someone in the community. So it's everything from a woman who's been collecting aluminum cans for years, and she uses all the money to buy instruments for kids at the, in the inner city, to a husband and wife who lost their child at the age of, I think, one. And they created a foundation to help other parents go through that struggle of losing a child and everything in between. And we highlight those organizations at Fever Games through our Anthem Assist program. 
So again, so this is, I think this is the next version of partnership. It's not about, oh yeah, their logo is in the program. It's about their impact is in the community. And that's what we find with the fever in particular, our partners are saying, where's the impact? And so for these groups I told you about with Anthem Assist, by highlighting them at halftime of our game, it raises the visibility so more people can learn about those groups and support them or get help from them. So this, it falls back into our three C's. Everything in life is so simple to me. It's commit, compete, and contribute. You know, Anthem comes on board, we find this great partnership, and how do we contribute back into the community together to have an impact? All right, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. This is the IBJ Podcast. Taft, today's modern law firm. With more than 625 attorneys across 11 offices, we provide solutions to the business issues facing middle market and emerging companies alike. We do this through a highly collaborative and inclusive team approach. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. Okay, we're back with this week's edition of the IBJ Podcast and my conversation with Allison Barber, President and Chief Operating Officer of the Indiana Fever. Oh, I, I did want to ask you uh, about attendance. Mm-hmm. The, uh, you know, the Fever traditionally, I mean, back in the in the teens would draw between like seven and 8,000 fans. Then, of course, we had the, we had COVID and with the 2020 season didn't actually happen. Is that right? It did happen, but it happened in Florida. So it was all in the bubble. Gotcha. Okay. And then last season, you shuttled back and forth between three different locations. Is that right? That's right. So the field house, Gainbridge field house is under renovation, which is coming along great. And it looks terrific. I think the fans will be thrilled. Uh, so we'll have it open by pacer season and so because of the construction, we bounced out of the field house and we started, well, we had our first few games at the field house. Then we went to the Coliseum to, and then we finished up at Butler. So we moved around a lot. And I think our, you know, our fan, our core fans were there for us and followed us. You know, we'd have a couple thousand fans in each game, but there were several fans that said, when we come back to the field house, we'll be back, but they just didn't have the capacity to bounce around and to the different locations. So I think that's, we can't wait to welcome our fans back to the field house. Yeah. That would seem to me to be um, something that you guys would be working on in the off season is how you get that message out. How do you bring back your old fans, but also, as you say, generate new fans. That's what I'm most excited about. You know, our research shows that the, the fan of the future for the fever are really these families with young kids because it's family friendly. The game of basketball is, I mean, it's part of our culture in Indiana. When you go to a WNBA game, you are still seeing amazing team basketball, you know, a lot of passing, a lot of good strategy, a lot of good defense. And, you know, we have found that parents like to bring their kids, boys and girls to our game to really see what it looks like at the next level um, at the elite level of how to play team ball. So I think our future is really, I mean, I'm so grateful for all the fans we've had. I think we, they're so loyal. Our next group of fans to attract will be these families with young kids. And the price point is good. And you know, for $20 a ticket, you can have great seats at a fever game, you know, so fans, families like that. That's interesting though, when you kind of rely on families with young children, I would assume after a while, 
those kids age out of going to fever games and they're off doing other sports. And so you sort of continually have to replenish that group. How do you, what are, what are the touch points? How do you, you get young families interested in coming? Well, we do a few things and I like the challenge of having to replenish. It's like running a business. You know, you would never say, oh gosh, we sold this product to this customer. We never have to think about another customer again. You know, of course, we all think of that in business of just, you've got to keep your pipeline of customers or fans active and, and give them something to be inspired by and encouraged to come to. So what we do uh, are a lot of events. We do a basketball camps all over the city and the state so that we're attracting the young kids who then want to come to a fever game so we think that's really important we're gonna we have a strategy now to work on university students who are alumni from all the colleges where we've attracted rookie talent so that we'll have college age and beyond coming so that young professional group coming so if you think about it if you think about young professionals who live and work in indy at some point, if they choose to, they'll have young children. So if you start that conversation now with those fans, then they become, when they're young families, they become fans or stay as fans. So I kind of put it in categories of the loyal fan, the occasional fan, and the episodic fan. So the loyal fans, we love them. They've been with us for 22 years, and they're just all in for the fever, and we're grateful. You know, the the occasional fan, they might come to a game or two because they've heard about it. Their company is coming. They're sponsoring a game. Their kids read at the library and win tickets. So those occasional fans we think can become loyal fans. The episodic fans are the people that live in Evansville. They bring their kids up to the zoo at the summer in the summer and they come to a fever game. That's an episodic fan. So, you know, it's just this understanding of not all fans are created equally, just like no all customers aren't created equally. So during this last season, I think you guys, I think you ended the season with a losing streak. It might've been 18 games or so. Right. Yes. Um, so as, as, as the, the person on top, as the leader, does that require extra attention, more uh, involvement with players and coaches? How do you make sure that while they endure this, they continue to remain optimistic and follow, I mean, the plan and remain focused on the plan or is that just something that is kind of below what you do? No, it's a big part of what I do. And, it's, you know, it's funny. It's a lesson I learned when I worked at the Pentagon. And I talk about the leadership lessons I learned from 9-11 because I worked at the Pentagon pre and post 9-11. And one of the lessons is that leaders show up. And so, you know, our office building was on fire at the Pentagon and President Bush came over to thank the firefighters and walked to the grounds, you know, he went to the World Trade Tower, but it personally for me, I was there when the president came to the Pentagon. And so that's what stands out in my mind. Um, you know, wounded troops at Walter Reed and Secretary Rumsfeld, who I worked for and President Bush, and they went to Walter Reed to visit the wounded troops and their families, like leaders show up. And it doesn't mean that you're gonna solve the problem. Like President Bush coming to the Pentagon while well, the Pentagon was still burning and people were sifting through ashes looking for you know, things to give to the loved ones, the wedding ring and the wallet. I mean, this was a terrible situation for our whole country. But in that, so President Bush showing up didn't change the trajectory of the crisis, but it gave people hope that he understood and he cared. And so, and I'm not comparing 9-11 to basketball, please, but the leadership lesson is the same. Leaders show up. And so, you know, our last trip, 
our team played in Dallas and I jumped out on plane and I went to the Dallas game just to be present, you know, to, to show that I care. We got three games left. It wasn't going to be a great season, but leaders show up. You know, when our team came back and the season was over, we took everybody out for dinner and gave all the players gifts at the end of the season. Leaders show up. And so this is, I think it's important because they didn't, this wasn't the season the players wanted either. But if you're going to, if you want to keep people motivated and and inspired, then you have to believe in that. And, and showing up is the best way to do that. So at the same time, I would assume you don't want to get just so involved that it looks like, you know, you're trying to ride in on a charging horse and, and potentially undercut what Lynn is doing, but you do want to be present. Yes. Am I reading that right? Yes. And so for the dinner, for the team and the gifts, Lynn and I do that together. Mm-hmm. And I hosted a lunch for all of our staff that have worked so hard on our, you know, the front office, marketing, digital. Lynn and I host those. That's the business side. Lynn and I host that together. On the basketball side, Lynn and I host that together. And so, I, you know, that's important to show we are, Lynn and I are very connected and united in our mission and our purpose and passion. We are every day. It's important for people to see that. We may have already covered some of this stuff. I'm just curious. So if you have a whiteboard at the office said things I'm doing this fall, <laughs> what are like your top three things that you're doing this fall? Oh, so the top three things I'm doing this fall, one, I'll have four players who have chosen not to go overseas. So they're going to be in, in market. So number one is how do I connect current and future fans and partners to our players? Now I can show up with players with me when I go to events and rotaries and chambers. So number one is connect is connection. Number two is expansion. <clears throat> so how do I travel to state in the off season? How do I connect with the high school basketball programs and the college teams to to invite them to the fan, to be fans of the fever and support the fever. So it's, you know, connecting our players, it's connecting future fans and then really it's a gratitude tour of meeting and spending time with our our partners who I think have been happy with a team that even though our performance on the court wasn't anything we wanted, our activation in the community exceeded the goals. And so that's how I spend my fall. Do you have to make a decision on whether Carlos Knox stays on as coach? Is there anything you can tell us about the coaching for next season? Well, you've kind of when your team struggles the way we struggled this season, you you really evaluate everything. So your coaching staff, your behind the team staff, your trainers, your players, your, I mean, everything is on the table for us to evaluate. And that's really the work of Lynn Dunn, the general manager, because she's the expert and the pro. So she'll evaluate all of that. They, you know, we respect and appreciate everybody who's worked for the fever. That's, there's no, no question there, but she'll evaluate if, and this is the, what's interesting about sports. It's not that different than business. But, you know, you can have people who are really good managers in business, but you have to have the right team around that manager for that, their strategies to succeed. And so that's a little bit of the, the a little bit of the magic that has to happen in sports, too. And so Lynn is evaluating everything. And, and I think she'll make some decisions in the next month or two that we'll be able to see and say, OK, this is the way forward. And Lynn is staying on for at least another year. Is that right? That's correct. Yes. Okay. Yes. I mean, I, she made some kind of joke at, at the the season-ending press conference about you know what does interim mean anyway? <laughs> is it right. is she definitely gone at the end of next season, or it's you guys are just taking it on a year-by-year basis? Oh, we're taking it on a year-by-year basis because you know she 
she came out of retirement to move into this role for us. We want to be respectful for Lynn. She, you know, she's done this career for a long time. And then at the same time, we want to keep our, you know, we want to keep our eyes open for the next version of the fever. Like, what does that look like? And so to have somebody like Lynn in this spot, it really gives us a lot of options to consider who we might bring on that Lynn could mentor and coach and shape, you know, so it's a really, it's a pretty unique and special relationship we have that I think will bode well for the future of the fever. You you talked about metrics. Uh, Are you as into metrics as to say, we need to have X amount of wins next season? Uh, We are not into that metric. We are into the metrics of we have to be better next season. And so that's why we weren't as discouraged as people might've thought from this past season because we got better, we were higher percentage of three-point shots, higher percentage of, you know, blocks, higher percentage of free throws. So the things that you can actually measure, metrics, you know, your percentage of shots made and blocks and those types of things in basketball, the, if you keep getting better, you will get more wins. You won't get more wins without getting better. So we, we got better on every metric this year that we were looking at, which was exciting. And so we know the wins will come. And, and what about, uh, like, for example, uh, average attendance? Is, is there a number that you're shooting for? Well, we sure we'd love to get back to that, you know, five and 6,000 fan attendance. That'll take some time because people have been away since COVID. So it's reintroducing the, a brand new team to the community because of all of our rookies. So I think that'll probably take us a year or two to get to that number, but we'll get there. You know, this year we celebrated two in- anniversaries with the, Two anniversaries. One was the 10th anniversary of when the Fever won the championship. So that was 10 years ago. And then, you know, as a society, we celebrated the 50th anniversary of Title IX. And I thought it was really poetic to have two those two anniversaries. So had Title IX 50 years ago, we give so much credit to Senator Bai from Indiana who helped pen and sign that legislation. I was with Billie Jean King, former, you know, tennis great. And she said every time she saw Birch by, she would thank him for Title IX. And if, you know, Title IX is 37 words talking about opportunity inclusion for education and other activities is what it says. And Birch by said to Billie Jean King, we put in other activities because we weren't sure what else to include in the title. And she said, you know, if they would have just left it off at education, because that was really the origin of Title IX, so women could go to college and have opportunities to in colleges, if you wouldn't put all their activities, sports wouldn't have been a thing for Title IX. So she was always celebrating the other activities, which then opened the door for sports scholarship for women. But for us, we look at that and say, you know, my fever players are college. They all went to four years of college and all but two have finished their degree. The other two are working on it right now because they are rookies and they just came right out of college. So we're looking at a very educated group of women who will play in the W for as long as they can and then go on to other careers. You know, two of my players right now have master's degrees. One's going for a PhD. Like this is all because of Title IX. And that's that's why I'm so passionate about getting our fever players in the community because when kids can see that you can be an elite athlete and have an education and have career goals, boy, I think that's just a wonderful story to share. And I know one of the things that the fever has been heavily involved in is uh, is equity and inclusion, and it's being able to recognize all different kinds of people, yes. uh, you know, for their value, uh, and that is the message I guess you're also taking on into the state as well. It is, you know, when we think think about Title IX, Title IX opened the doors for 
people to not be discriminated again based on their gender. And when you look at the Indiana fever, you know, any any of our partners who are talking about how do we really create a culture that says, you know, we are accepting, we're uh, inclusive, we recognize and celebrate diversity. Well, those are our fever players. You know, it's everything from players who started off in society and their parents maybe lived in a, a situation that wasn't terrific. And the only way for this one girl to go to college was to be a basketball star. And she got scholarships through college to be a basketball star. That's a great story. But you look at another one of my players who has a bachelor's and master's from Stanford in engineering. And, and her story is a different story, but they're all welcome here within the Indiana fever. And that's what we really want to share with the with the state is that the fever recognized differences and we celebrate them and we let people thrive with based on their passion and their ability. Hey, we've talked a lot and I'm sure you're super busy with all the things we've talked about today. Uh, so all of there, unless there's something else that you would like to talk about. And, you know, the one thing I would just share is that business leaders in our community, you know, I, I would just invite business leaders to really think about how how working with the fever, how celebrating and promoting the athletes are it's a good business formula. You know, it's a it's good for the companies to think about supporting the Pacers and the Fever and really engaging and letting our players be a part of their company's success as well. You know, there's something there's a form there's a there's a strategy there that I think is beneficial to all, and we welcome it. Well, thank you so much for sharing all this today. I very much appreciate it. And uh, maybe we'll check uh, back in in a couple of seasons and, and see how everything's worked out. That's great. I look forward to it. Thank you. I'd love to have you and your family at the game. My thanks again to Allison Barber. And folks, before you get on with the rest of your week, there are some stories in the latest edition of IBJ that I'd like to bring to your attention. First up, the owner of the Indy 11 soccer team says he's confident his plans for a new stadium downtown won't hinge on asking for more state tax dollars than he already has been promised. But as Mickey Shuey reports, the potential cost of the project has increased since the legislature agreed three years ago to help fund it. Also in this week's issue, Peter Blanchard reports on an effort from mayors in central Indiana to receive what they think is a more equitable amount of state funding for road work. And Taylor Wooten reports that the Hoosier Environmental Council has joined some West Indianapolis residents in opposing a proposed wastewater treatment plant. Again, you can find these stories in the latest print edition of IBJ or online at ibj.com. I will say it is easier to access all of the latest local news about business and politics and all of IBJ's data on central Indiana's business community and economy if you're a subscriber. And here's a new development. We have wrapped all of IBJ's content together with all of the stories, columns, and podcasts from our sister publication, Inside Indiana Business. And that works out to about $3 per week for actionable information about every notable development in business around the state. You won't find Indiana's story told with this kind of breadth and depth anywhere else. Just go to ibj.com and click on the subscribe button. And thanks again for making time this week for the IBJ podcast. I'm Mason King. Hang in there, everybody. We'll be back again next week.